This is Yusai. Welcome to Let's Talk, a place for open conversations. Michelle Kwan is the most decorated American skater in history, achieving nine U.S. championships, five world championships, and two Olympic medals. Now she's using her voice in a political arena, which is more important than ever. Also, Chasen Budajec is the author of New York Times bestseller. I have something to tell you. The book shares his journey in the LGBTQI community and campaign support of his husband in the 2020 election. Michelle Kwan is an icon. For decades, she stood both as an amazing athlete and an inspiration to the power of women in the AAPI community. After her storied career, she began working in international diplomacy and has been active as a surrogate in both presidential campaigns for Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. Becoming one of the greatest figure skaters in history requires unbelievable work, more than I can imagine. But before all the training and competition, where does the passion and the journey begin? Michelle Kwan, thank you for joining me today. Oh, what a privilege! So glad to be joining you. Well, we have a lot that we're going to talk about today, and before we dive into the current affairs, I would like to go back a little bit of history and talk about the heritage and talk about what you represent to someone like me by watching you growing up on the television. And I, I want to go right back and try to remember that very first time you put on the skate. What was that like for you? Wow, uh, I was five years old when I first laced up my skates to get on the ice. I remember it. So vividly because I just remember admiring all the skaters skating around, doing jumps and spins, and I thought it was the perfect sport because it's such a great combination of like elegance and beauty with such music. When you watch it on television, you know all the women have makeup and you know in costume. I I was like athleticism and grace and beauty, power too. You know. I just loved it, and of course, I wasn't born to skate. I like probably ran up onto the ice and then realized, ah, this is slippery. I was holding onto the boards for dear life, like you know, one foot in front of the other. And of course, my brother and older sister thought it funny that they just grabbed my hand. And this is like a crowded, you know, session, public skate. Maybe fifty or a hundred people on the ice, and they would grab my hand and just let go. They would go skate, 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 and then let go. And I'm like, ah. Needless to say, I had to like learn very quickly. Um, but I just fell in love. It it was a sport that just I gravitated towards. And what an interesting sport to pick up as an Asian American. You know, our parents will always put us through piano, violin, different languages, all those different disciplines. <laughs> How did skating came about? Let me tell you, my parents uh, tried the piano, tried the violin, tried the—I mean, yeah, flute. But luckily, see, I had older siblings. My brother—I remember many failed recitals where he was like, "Ding, ding, ding, ding," and my parents were like, "Michelle, why don't you do something else?" For me, it was the, either gymnastics or figure skating. Those were the two options. <laughs> so I, I, I lucked out. The figure skating was really a great opportunity because there was an ice rink fairly close to mm -hmm. where we live. And when did it 
dawned to you that this is it. This is the passion. This is what I love. And I am going to be on this ice for the rest of my life. I seriously thought that I'd be doing it for the rest of my life. Um, skating it will always be, you know, near and dear to my heart. But I fell in love at the age of five. And then two years later, I watched the Olympics. And that's when I was like completely hooked. And I remember telling my parents, it was this like grand gesture. Mom and dad, I know what I want to do the rest of my life. I want to be an Olympic figure skater. So for 20 years, I didn't have to think about what I was going to, you know, wanting and wishing to be. It was this like very clear vision for me. In fact, somebody had given me an Olympic sticker and it was right uh, maybe six years, I want to say five, six years before the Nagano Olympics. And I remember framing it and putting it above my bed. And it was like the first thing I saw when I woke up, last thing I saw when I went to sleep. And it was that kind of dream of always wanting to be the best skater I can be, representing the United States, having the honor to do that. And, you know, I, I had such a, a lovely long career in figure skating and something that I will always cherish for the rest of my life. When you told your mom and your family that I'm going to be an Olympian, I'm going to be on ice, did they look at you and go, sure? Or did they actually go, you know what? We're going to go on this ride with you and we're going to make sure you achieve your dream. I think it was a little bit of both. So at that point, I had already taken some figure skating like group lessons. So they knew that I was so dedicated and loved it so much. But then... I think my parents were like, if this is what you want to do, you have to make sure that you work hard to doing it. And like, you know, you see these Olympic figure skaters and Olympic athletes every four years. It's blood, sweat, and tears that got them there. And I think I had to learn early on that dreaming only takes you so far, that you have to keep at it, keep focused, keep working, because nothing falls from the sky onto your lap. Every champion has a support system behind them, and often it's our families that enable us to thrive. As children, we often overlook the struggles and the sacrifices our parents make to give us the opportunities and advantages they want for us. I was 13. At one point, my parents said to us, we can't afford skating lessons. And this was probably a month before the national championships. I qualified national championships and I was coachless I think things could have went the other way and I would not have continued I remember when I grabbed my skate and my dad was so excited he's like I got you new skates like this was a big deal I got you new skates and I was like that's so awesome he said these are custom skates and I was like whoa and I was like but how did I get custom skates when I was not fitted for them? These must be magical skates. It turns out I tried the skates and they fit. And I, I turned the skate upside down where they have the engraving of, you know, your name. And instead of like having my name engraved, it was a, another girl's name. And then my dad scratched me off and then putting my name on it. So that pair of skates, I have to tell you, means so much to me because it's that, oh, it's going to get me all teary-eyed. It's that kind of um, heart 
passion and like love and, you know, sacrifice for my parents, not, not on my end because it's what I wanted to do, but it wasn't, you know, their, their dreams to go to the Olympics. It was mine. Well, it's, it's interesting because there are two different sides of a story that growing up in the Asian American family. One is that the parents will do everything they can to make sure you don't have to go through the hardship they go to, right? As a first generation immigrant, my parents wanted to make sure that I did not end up in the kitchen cooking like my dad or going to field working like my father's a farmer still, right? Not to do that and steer you away from whatever you, you think is right for you to what they think is right. But your parents on the other side of the spectrum that, that sacrifice themselves more so to make sure they support your vision and your goal. And, and that is so important to talk about because that is truly the true bipolar reality in the Asian culture growing up. The type of sacrifices our parents make, you may not see at the time, but boy, I'm grateful and so blessed my parents, when I started skating, didn't envision me being an Olympic ice skater. If anything, it was more, hey, Michelle, you have to do something extracurricular activity in order to get perhaps into a good college. And I want to applaud your parents for that because I don't think we say thank you enough to our parents and the, especially Asian Americans, right? We yeah. don't say thank you. Because you just assume is there. You don't say we love you if you grow up in the country. We just don't. Growing up as an Asian American, I look for role models to inspire me on my path. This is why representation is so important. We all need people that we can identify with to give us courage on our own personal journeys. You're second generation, so you're more American Asian. I'm first generation, so I'm Asian American. When you were in the <laughs> and when you were in the field of ice at that time, were there a lot of Asian Americans for you to look up to in the community to say somebody else has done this, so I can follow that? There were not a lot of figure skaters. I mean, we have, of course, Christy Yamaguchi, Olympic champion '92, and Albertville, um, who I really looked up to, but. I mean, there was Michael Chang, I remember. I mean, I remember seeing Connie Chung on television. There wasn't, you know, where we are now with Crazy Rich Asians, who I know you had uh, spoken to Kevin Kwan. Not my brother, by the way. We're not related. <laughs> related but we had a nice conversation the other day. He knows his ancestry. And, and he was like, if you are not related to Nancy Kwan, the actor, then we're not related. <laughs> And he went through his whole family, you know, it was, it was incredible. But, you know, it's, it's a different representation now um, with Asian Americans. And it's so beautiful to see. And, you know, when you look at the Olympics and the United States, you like, and how many Asian Americans there are mm. you know, representing our country, it's, it's fabulous. But that all has to do with you. You led the way. You led the path. Whether you like to hear or not. I know Asians don't like to take compliments. So I'm going to serve it as I feel like you deserve. As a young gay man watching you figure skating gracefully. I'm in my room with my leg up trying to do the same. And, and I know that's just for so many, so many Asians and gays and, and young girls. And, and, and I said the gay community because uh, I don't know one person in the gay community don't love figure skating. If you say you don't, you're lying. 
here we are watching you representing American, Asian, Asian American, whatever that may be. It gave such amazing voice for the you know, AAPI community because we, we don't get to see that. Yes, Connie Chan was somebody I looked up to. And then Lisa Ling came after, yeah. right? And somewhere in between, there was many years of Michelle Kwan. <laughs> One of the greatest lessons I have learned watching Michelle was her strength and grace. Everyone encounters challenges, but it takes incredible passion to risk competing in front of a crowd of millions. What was incredible about you, and I want to celebrate this too, is that you have shown people it is okay to fall. And when you fall, you get back up. And you are a true example that we can talk about that all we want. Mom can teach you that. Your friends can tell you that. But you do it in front of thousands and millions of people. Yes. Where did you get that strength to do that? The sport of figure skating, let me tell you, has taught me so many incredible life lessons at such an early, early age. You know, you might see it as an individual sport where you see one figure skater out there and on their own. Trust me, I had a huge team behind me. You know, my parents for one, coaches, and, and, and people really behind me, supporting me to achieve my goals and dreams. But I think in terms of hard work, you learn, like I was saying earlier, I dreamt of being at the Olympics at seven, and then I realized dreaming only takes you so far. It's not like you can just sign a piece of paper and you're like, ah, I made it to the Olympics, like no big deal. <laughs> um, but falling down is one of those tough lessons that you learn in life too, because unfortunately, it's not always glory and fame and all this pretty stuff. I learned the hard way, making mistakes at the Olympic Games, falling in front of millions of people and having to pick yourself back up. And then, you know, a microphone shoved right into your face. And it's being honest and, and sometimes, you know, having a tear or two is okay. You know, I, I let the emotions out. I, you know, sometimes it just happens. If representation is important in media, it's even more important in a political arena where people with similar heritage and views shapes the freedom that we all enjoy. Michelle has devoted years to diplomacy and support for candidates. You are now serving as a director of surrogate. Give us a little bit of understanding what that role means as a director of surrogate for the 2020 Joe Biden presidential campaign. I jumped on the campaign trail very early on because the last two years since 2016 has been very uh, tumultuous, frustrating. One of those things where I really deeply care about um, where we are as country. And I think the leadership has, has shown it's very incapable of keeping us safe and unifying. Instead, it's been very divisive, dividing our country. And we're in a pandemic. You know, there's so much at stake in these elections. The economy, you know, when you're you're thinking about how we're going to build back better. When we get through this hump um, and we're, we're back to work, like, what does it look like? Getting to, to my point of November 3rd and um, this election. So make sure that you register to vote. Make sure you use your voice. Make sure you get the information that's out there, whether it's IWillVote.com or other websites to know your polling locations if you're doing a mail-in ballot. 
Um, so back to your question, uh, I am the director of surrogates and people always wonder, what are surrogates? Well, they're essentially people who have endorsed the vice president and who are supportive of the Biden-Harris ticket. So we have folks that are campaigning virtually all over the country. Traditional campaigning is out the window because of the pandemic. There are no volunteers or supporters knocking on doors. They are making phone calls. So we have our broadest coalition of supporters. They're Latino, they're AAPI, African-American, LGBT, women for Biden, you name it. They have a lot of groups on Facebook, Instagram, AAPIs for Biden, um, and really getting them engaged, whether it's like helping finance events, helping organizing events, helping in key battleground states. As we know, there'd be Arizona, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, getting them plugged in and making sure everyone understands what's at stake. And I think AAPIs in, in general really need to step up and vote. We're the fastest growing minority. So tell your aunties, your papas, your yes, your everyone. Tell tell everyone to make sure that they use their voice. Yeah, we can't complain about being a marginalized community without actually do the work. We can't dream for a better future, like you said, without actually do the work. Because I think that we have to not assimilate into the society invisibly anymore. We need to actually recognize and stand. How much have I learned that by not recognizing my own skin color and celebrating it and make sure that I pave path for the next generation or even people in my generation or the older generation, then I'm not doing my part, right? And I'm not doing my part. And through that, I've been watching your work, um, your voice for AAPI. And I think we need more voices like you out there because you are a champion. You are a strength. You are someone who truly exemplified Failure is not an answer. Representation matters. In order to have a seat at the table, we have to speak up. People have died to make sure that you have a seat at the table. Just use it. Be informed. But I can tell you this, that in certain states, you know, AAPIs can really make the difference between winning and losing. And so when you think about, well, my vote doesn't count. First of all, yes, it does. And you can't sit in the backseat and just let things happen. Because as we know, things don't do that. Um, and as, as President Obama has said, like, don't boo, vote. Okay? Don't boo, vote. And this election, more than, you know, any election in our history, there is so much at stake, especially what we're going through at this moment, where we're going through a pandemic. You know, people are really afraid being able to pay for the next, their next bill, you know, you know, whether it's small businesses, I know, you know, personally, it, it really deeply impacted my family. I have a skating rink and my whole family's involved and we had to shut down like everyone else. And when are we going to go back to, you know, building back? And, and that is why I'm so, so supportive in many ways of, of Vice President Biden and Senator Harris. I think they're a dynamic duo for one, They'll get the job done. A kid before, I was like, well, Vice President Biden knows his way around the White House. He certainly knows where the restroom is, the old office. <laughs> like, there is no learning curve. You know, we need a, a leader that is respected on the world stage as well and, and not being laughed at. So many things that are in stake. And you can't go through life going like, oh, my, my voice doesn't matter. Oh, 
you know, we're all influencers. We all have connections, whether it's through our colleagues or our friends, our family members. It's being able to step up. And for me, it's, you know, identifying, of course, clearly as an Asian American, as an immigrant, as my parents immigrated to the United States in their early 20s, like similar to you, you know, chasing after the American dream and making sure they work hard and like pull you through, you know, sacrificing to make sure that we, us kids, have better opportunities. And and when I look at what's at stake, and to me, that is what's at stake. You know, who is who's going to be a president that will unify our country, that, you know, will have an administration that's reflective of our country as well. My job right now is, is building the broadest coalition of voices to help amplify the vice president, his policies, and what he sees as our future of the United States. How do we send a message out and amplify this message to a community that often stays in the shadow and silent? I think there's so many ways. Uh, speaking up, I think, is, is one. You know, talking to your friends, daily conversation. Now we're not, you know, meeting up with a lot of your friends, but like picking up the phone. If you're on Instagram, use it as an incredible platform to inform because there is so much misinformation and disinformation out there. Education. Uh-huh. I think you're right. It's truly right. about education. One thing that I have learned through this process, I could no longer have the mentality, well, I live in a blue state. I live in California. My vote doesn't really matter on the presidential ticket. To make change, you start with your community. Start with your local officials. They help make decisions to the next level and the level. you got to build them from ground up. I am one to say, I'm sorry, I'm guilty of it by saying, I live in California, I'm good. Whatever happens elsewhere is not my problem because I voted. I voted for my party. But it's more than that now, right? It's more than that. It's about the Supreme Court. It is about the just... uh, we know it's about the people you appoint in the cabinet. It's all about the post office general. Like it's all about little nitty gritty details. And I do think because how crazy the time we're going through right now, that the news have served a purpose to expose how important it is for us. Because I don't think that the people, mundane everyday people at home, think about the trickle down effect it actually has on our everyday life. When you're not getting your check in time, you're not getting your medication in time, you're not getting your Medicare check in time to pay your bill, you need to look at why. That why is why we need to vote. I too been an agent of silence, right? I've been just focusing on, and in many ways, maybe selfish, right? We focus on our own family. We focus on, um, already we already conquer what everybody wants to conquer to have American dream as an immigrant. And that speaks for Latin Americans as well, Mexicans and all different immigrants. I'm not speaking only for the Asian Americans, but culturally, I can define it and I can understand. I'm not, a, I'm not a majority here. We are the fastest growing community and we have a responsibility to at least educate. We may not be able to make you vote the way you want to vote, but at least give you a clear picture instead of through the fog that we see on television. We have to do our part. I mean, simply put. Uh, again and again, this year more than any election will be the highest turnout because I think there's a stark contrast between who we have now and the opportunity of electing somebody who's really capable and also, you know, adding Senator Harris to the VP pick. I mean, it is a, a force to reckon with. I think they come in 
with such knowledge and understanding and will be an empathetic leader. And for both of us are in the field of arts, you know, we know the art program has been cut tremendously through this administration. We know the support for scholarship for college students is hurting and we, we're hurting on top of it during pandemic. Well, the fact is we're in the middle of this storm and for anyone who has weathered through storm is you through your entire amazing career. And, and you've been in politics for a very long time. And this one is truly the most important one, I would say. Make sure you go to IWillVote.com to get all the information in your state. And it's, it's, a, it's a very trying time, but we will get this, get through this together. Chastin was thrust into the public eye when his husband, Pete Buttigieg, announced his candidacy for president. Now, he has written a very revealing and personal book about discovering himself and growing up in middle America. Chastin Buttigieg, thank you for joining me here today. It's nice to be with you. It's, it's nice to uh, take a break and chat. How are you today? I'm doing very well. I see that you are very active right now. You're working really, really hard, pounding the pavement with the Joe Biden campaign. Tell me oh, yeah. where you are right now. So I'm in Michigan right now. Pete and I were doing a couple events in Michigan uh, yesterday. Uh, it's also my home state. So I'm in my hometown of Traverse City, Michigan right now. Uh, but we're, we're everywhere. And the, and the thing about the pandemic is we can also be everywhere on Zoom. So doing a lot of events all across the country. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to have a conversation here with me today. And I'm so glad I was able to reach out to you. And because I've been watching this incredible journey you've been on as part of the LGBTQ plus community. I find the incredible need just reach out and give you a big hug and say, thank you so much for being such an incredible representation. And, oh, thank and you. I want, absolutely. Well, let's dive right into, I have something to tell you. Well, first, before we do that, I have something to tell you. And that <laughs> is, I had the opportunity to read every word of the book and oh. going through that incredible journey. And I too grew up in the middle of America in, Indiana, Terry Ho, Indiana. Yeah. So you sure know where that is. And, yeah. and the, the social climate there wasn't so easy for minority. But I relate to the book so much so that I know so many kids out there, like, the ones that are trying to find who they are, whether straight, gay, queer, identity, whatever the identity is, adolescence is just yes. hard to begin with. I know that for them, this book must be so incredibly healing. And I want to know, what that, was that for you as well? To write this book, was that a healing process for you? In some ways, yes. When we came off the campaign trail, I started writing um, much more and decided I wanted to put the book out this year. I was spending, you know, 12 hour days every day writing. And I got to the point where I just was so confused and tired. And, you know, you hope that when you send this book out into the world, it accomplishes the things you hope it accomplishes. But by the end of the book, I was just exhausted, continuously revising stories and going back and you know, into those feelings. And then the mail started arriving and the reviews started coming in and people would DM messages or post something online um, about what you just said. You know, the story resonated with them. School wasn't easy for them. They were bullied. Uh, they too found refuge in the arts. Uh, it wasn't easy for them to be queer wherever they were growing up. Some people still haven't talked to their family. And I wanted people to feel seen in my book. I wanted people to get to know the real me. And I thought by being a little vulnerable, 
putting stories out there, talking about all those struggles and feelings. Hopefully other people could see themselves reflected in those stories. I definitely didn't know any queer authors growing up. I truly thought that it was, you know, it was an abomination to be gay. Something was wrong with me. Something was twisted. And so I hope that, you know, for some young people who are reading the book, um, they can identify with some of those struggles, but they also see the hope that is there as well. Going through that book and going through the journey with you, the adolescent years in Northern Michigan, that being so secluded and, and religiously bound, the religiously connected soil, right? That's where we kind of find our foundation. And then have to fight against that to find your own voice. It's never going to be easy, no matter where you live. Yeah. When I begin to have this conversation with people in the LGBTQS community, right? It's just a yeah. conversation that that's still in some parts of the world that we know it's not encouraged or celebrated, but it has to start somewhere. So right. I thank you for starting here and I thank you for exemplifying that. And that is so very important. Growing up is hard for everyone. I know that I struggled to find my identity and learn to express myself. Within the queer community, we had different sets of challenges and each of us learned how to navigate relationships and come out in our own way. Chaston offers a very candid look at his own life. As you go through the book, you get to see the growth as you grew through college years and on the road with Pete and doing this incredible work and campaigning. It was exhausting just <laughs> reading it. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a tough process. And I bet it was more exhausting doing it. But yeah. another thing that you talked about in that book, what I found is this common thread, your resilience. Whether it's through this time that you didn't think your voice was being heard in college or your actions wasn't bright and big enough for your parents to see who you were. And then that same message carried through finding your voice on the campaign trail as well. Mm-hmm. To be able to make sure that you can amplify what you love, the passions in education. At what point of this journey that you're on that you realize, wait a minute, guys, I have something to tell you. I have a voice and this is me. To be honest, when I was approached just at the beginning of the campaign, someone had reached out uh, and suggested I consider writing a book. And I laughed at the at the offer. Um, I didn't think, you know, my story was worthy of a book. I thought it would be silly to write something called a memoir at, at 31. You know, it's a it's a partial memoir. It's just a, a just a starting point. But when I was on the campaign trail, the first few months, I truly thought that I was an imposter. I did not belong in those spaces. How do you follow in the footsteps of, you know, someone like Michelle Obama? How could you even be considered, you know, uh, to play a similar role that that she had people who were you know, had had decades more experience on me. And I started feeling all of this pressure, you know, who to be, what to say, how do you campaign um, for president when you've barely ever been in this arena? And then I started spending a lot of my time in the LGBTQ community, spent a lot of time with the LGBTQ community, teachers, artists, things that I know, things that are personal to me. And the more vulnerable I asked people to be, the more vulnerable I was. And then in turn, therefore, the more vulnerable they were. We were having these beautiful conversations on the campaign trail. And I started realizing, you know, all of these things that we are all told define us in the worst ways or somehow we have failed at the game of life. You know, it took me five years 
uh, to finish college as a first-generation college student. For, for, for better or for worse, I am the gay man that I am, and that is good enough for some people and, and not enough for other people. And, you know, my experience with medical debt and, and traversing, you know, healthcare in this country, and I just feel like a failed person, right? Like somehow I've just, I failed and I'm 31. I've got the student debt. I've got medical debt. I, you know, I'm still trying to figure out who I am as a professional and as a husband. Um, and so I just started talking about all that stuff talking about my hopes and my dreams and my fears and my story. And I saw that people resonated with it uh, and people started sharing their stories. And I thought, you know, I got to stop forcing myself to believe I have to be a certain type of person. I just got to be myself. And, and I, that is what kind of pushed me to, to really write the book is because I think we need thousands of more stories like this, uh, especially in the queer community. We, we need, we need thousands of more queer stories. And I'm glad that the book is a little bit more candid than usual, a little more forthcoming, I think, because it's important that people get to know the real you. And I wanted people to get to know the authentic Justin. And that it is. It is incredibly transparent and incredibly honest. You share the trial and tribulations of your childhood with your family and your brother. And then I know that we can read a lot of this stuff on the news because you are being scrutinized throughout this entire process. But what was interesting for me reading your book is that I try to not think about who you are today. <laughs> I jump into the mindset of reading a story from that point of view of that mm. person at that time. So I can really understand what you're going through. And as I did that, what I found was walking the same path as you. I'm walking side by side with you. At times I feel like I'm holding your hand because oh. I just want to reach out and say, Everything's going to be okay. And what was yeah. interesting was that by chapter two, chapter three, I literally said, wow, he is the accidental activist. He is going to be an advocate for this community. Everything that he's going through. And I have chills talking about it and I get very emotional about it because so much of this journey that we go through, is, it's, we're ashamed of it. Yes, we were called faggots. Yes, yeah. those names were perpetrated on us. And yes, it did affect us as we go through this journey and we reflect back at the people who have been bullies. And in fact, they're the ones that are the most more insecure than all of us were ever been. And and I can visualize the awkwardness in you because I feel that reflection in me. And I was definitely a crazy, awkward kid growing up. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I couldn't even say I was in a closet because I don't know what that was. <laughs> right. As I go through this book and I begin to see that what you touch upon was just this relationship. As I watch you staying in that, that place where you're going through the adolescence and there are few gay people around and there's dating. It's hard to begin with, right? And you oh, go yeah. through this relationship and, and I, I can see it. And I say, I watch it because I cringe, right? I mm -hmm. cringe because we all go through that. Yeah. Trust me, I'm still swiping right and asking who's going to swipe right with me. <laughs> oh, someone's you know? going to swipe right. They do, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't mean I'm going to swipe right back. They I mean, do, but it's, it's besides the point. <laughs> besides the point, that's a whole different discussion about choices we make. <laughs> Trying to find that acceptance on this digital world, it is so crazy hard. What was that like for you? You grew up in like, hey, this is a new normal. I, I had to learn it. I didn't know what dating was supposed to look like, you know, besides the, like the fantasies that are, you know, offered up and painted for straight kids, right? What 
does flirting look like? Like I wrote in the book about my first experience, like kissing a boy. And I thought that was really important to write about because I never read about that stuff growing up. I never read about a teenage boy coming to terms with his identity um, and like the rush and the thrill and the excitement and the nerves of like finding another person who thinks you're cool and attractive and funny and smart and that's why I kind of wrote about the good and the bad because I had no idea what to expect. And because I had no idea what to expect, I also didn't know necessarily what was healthy and what wasn't healthy and what abuse looks like and what healthy relationships looked like and sounded like. And unfortunately I taken advantage of uh, a few times. It's like the world just kind of like shot me out of like out into like a new gay world and I'm this like 18 year old kid who's grown up, you know, for, for 18 years, I've thought the thing inside me was an abomination and it was, you know, something had malfunctioned in my brain and that I was disgusting and, you know, not worthy of love and acceptance. And then I realized that, oh, maybe I can be gay and it's okay to be gay. And then, you know, I came out, I ran away from home and I went out into the world and I had no idea really who I was, what I was looking for what love looked like. And so, yeah, then you, you know, you turn to dating apps um, and that's a whole new lesson in, you know, what, what is appropriate for people to say to you and, and how do you stick up, you know, how do you stick up for yourself, but also go into this new world excited and terrified. And I think it's interesting now, and, you know, a lot of people want to talk about dating apps, journalists of a younger, younger generations, We'll just be like, so you guys met on Hinge, right? Like, yeah, we met on Hinge. Like, okay, next question. And, you know, journalists from, like, much older generations will be like, isn't that scandalous to be meeting someone on a dating app? Should the mayor have been on the dating app? (laughs) You know, but there's still, but that means there is still then stigma around how people date and how people meet. And depending on what app they use to meet, um, keeping in mind that sometimes these apps are the only safe spaces for people to connect with other people. Um, and to truly feel like you can be your own self and your truest, most authentic self, you know? Um, so all in a nutshell, I guess, you know, the the dating experience for me was exhausting and um, thrilling and, you know, just everything, every emotion. But then that's why I thought it was so important to spend some time talking about it in the book, because that's reality. Like my story is not like a Taylor Swift love story, <laughs> like princess story. It's uh uh, very different. But your story does end you meet with P on the dating app, which is a rarity. So we're all looking for P right now, all of us. <laughs> <laughs> with a new responsibility of being cast into the public eye, how do you prepare to respond to scrutiny and still hold on to your authenticity? One thing that in your book that I absolutely celebrate with you that you love the theater. And, yeah. and when I read that, I know that for so many of our LGBTQ plus community, for the queers out there, that we all fall in love with theater. And I know people go, why do you guys like to be in a theater? For me, in fact, it's truly that I get to be anybody else but me, right? We get to be yeah. any character we want to be. And yeah. I went so far as work with Disney and became characters. And really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I danced with Disney for years and played okay. characters. It was like my safe haven. We get to play different roles and we get to get to be anything but who we are. Yeah. And and yet you went through all that and then you get thrown into the stage of reality that you don't get to play any other character 
with Chaston. You have to be as truthful and authentic on the campaign trail. How do you prepare for that? Yeah, well, I used to, you know, in the early early days, journalists would be off the record backstage or you know standing in a hotel lobby, and people would always ask that, you know, what prepared you for this moment? Are you prepared for this? Are you ready for this? And I would joke, you know, I have a degree in theater; I can do anything. And then they would laugh. And I felt like they never really took that answer seriously. I'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a teacher. I deal with middle school kids all day. You know, I have a degree in theater. Like, I'm, I'm very comfortable, like, standing in front of people and dealing with bullshit. And, you know, they, they would chuckle, but I feel like people really didn't, like, respect the, the field, either theater or teaching, right? As if that could be something to prepare you for the national stage. And you're right. My, my comfort in theater, especially as, like, a closeted kid, was, like, I get to be everything that I'm not. And then in college, it was just like such a safe space for me to, to feel alive that I could, you know, step out onto the stage and command a room and I would feel comfortable in my own skin, but I was playing a character. I wasn't, I didn't have to come to terms with, you know, all of the demons I was battling on the inside. And then you go out on the campaign trail. I felt like I had to be someone. I felt like I had to be a character of, you know, the potential, first gentleman of the United States. And then I realized I cannot pretend to be anything but myself because at the end of the day, then if people like you, then thank God they like the real me. And if they hate me, well then at least they hate me and they don't hate this like character I'm pretending to be. Outside our community, we're encouraged and empowered by our friends and allies, which is why it is so important to engage in uncomfortable conversations with our loved ones. We all need to take responsibility for building communication and bridging understanding. The conversation about allyship, it, is, it can't just be this thing that you think you are. Like, oh, I would never discriminate. I'm, you know, yay gays. Like, how are you actually making sure that you are supporting the people around you in their life and making sure that they know that they are worthy of everything that we want, right? love and attention and acceptance and civil rights. And I am here because my straight friends, my allies told me that I was worthy of all of those things. They told me that they would fight for me. And it's important that straight people read stories like this, that they read um, other people's stories and that way they can better empathize with the people around them. But allyship has to be verbal and it has to, you, you actually have to take action that is why I want straight people to, to read the story as well, because it's just so important. It's so important that you, you learn more about who you can be for other people, how you can be a better ally, and how to better support those people that you say um, you support and love. Obviously, you should never out somebody, right? Our journey is our journey. But I did appreciate having friends who said, if you ever want to talk about anything, I'm here for you. You are always worthy of space. You are always worthy of love. And I think it's really hard for us sometimes to have those conversations with our friends, you know, where we're having a drink or we're, we're having a good time and we don't want to talk about our feelings too much or we don't want to make things awkward. But having people in your life who will just say, you know, pause, I love you and I love everything about you and I will fight for you um, no matter what you need me to do. All political figures have to endure their private lives and relationships becoming public. But as we strive for equality, 
we see not all relationships are covered in the same way by media. You, know, you mentioned earlier that so much of the politics is scrutinized. I mean, so much of it's planned, and and we cannot not talk about this incident. That I have to ask in the political world, everything that's planned, decision to to P decision to announce a run for the presidency. There was a moment mm. one must ask: Was that kiss planned? No, it was not. And、uh, I remember sort of. They were walking us through, you know, this person will come out, and this person will come out, and then Pete will come out, and then, you know, Chastin, you'll come here, and you'll. I, we agreed that I would like approach from his left side. That was it, and、uh, I was just really proud of him. I was like shaking backstage. I was just so full of emotion, and I, when I came out on that stage, I was so proud of him,、um, and I did what most spouses do when they go up on stage. You know, and, and show their pride、um, for and of their their spouse. I hugged him, and I and I get it was actually a peck on the cheek, and you know that was like the mountains in Mordor opening in the right wing media, right? Like I pecked my husband on the cheek, and that was too much. And along the way, it was interesting to be asked about that. I was like, why aren't you guys asking this question of any straight spouse? I don't hear you asking any straight spouse like. Why do you go up on stage and kiss your wife, or why do you go up on stage and, and kiss your husband? It was just our kiss that was unseemly, which gets into what I try to touch on in the book. Is I just think some people, especially people in the media, are fine with gay people as long as they remain sexless,、mm-hmm. as long as we don't present、um, as you know, like loving people. You know, we we have to be so palatable for some people, especially in the right wing media, right? That like a peck on the cheek is just absolutely uncalled for. Meanwhile, we have a president in the White House who speaks about women so disparagingly, but that's not a problem apparently. But I actually thank the right wing media for making such a spectacle of it, and I call it spectacle because. It was a moment that truly did break the glass ceiling in the political spectrum of the, our, our community. It was a moment to celebrate.、But、what's so interesting is that with the right wing media coming for you for that kiss, the same community that on the opposite end is coming to charge at you for not being gay enough. So, <laughs> yeah, how、well, do you win this battle? <laughs> yeah, and I get it. It was a historic campaign, and it. You know, everyone had an idea of what it should be, right? And the problem is, many people who write about the queer community、um, are straight, and、um, it's really important that people understand that the queer community is not a monolithic community. I would be really offended if somebody asked me who I was going to vote for for president, and and if I didn't say the gay guy, you know, I would be somehow a traitor to the movement because I have a difference of opinion. I believe that people. Are are entitled to vote for whoever they want to, and if they didn't, you know, maybe、oh, they liked Pete, they just liked somebody else more, and that is great. That we are at this moment in American politics where you can celebrate that there is a gay candidate, and you can also vote for somebody else if you want to, you know, if if their bus is getting you closer to where you think the country should go. But certainly, it's important for people to understand that this community, you know, we don't all just like get together on Wednesdays and have tea. Like we are very different people, and we all are part of this. Acronym, a very big acronym, right? And to be a white cisgender gay man、um, is just one piece of that acronym, a one very small sliver of this this pie. 
And so it was important for me on the campaign trail to go out there and meet with people whose lived experiences were so different than mine. And spending a lot of time uh, in the transgender community and with young queer activists whose, whose expectations are much bigger than maybe mine were when I was 18, right? But we are a beautifully diverse and wide community. I would say if you were on top of a, the campaign bus, like Priscilla Print of Desert, Desert <laughs> with the flag flowing behind you, yeah. I think we would still celebrate with you. And Pete comes in with a unicorn that's painted like rainbow. <laughs> I don't think yeah. that. What do you think Rush Limbaugh would have said then? You share a funny story about how you met President Obama. <laughs> and that, see, you laughing yes. now, but I'm going to give you something to, to laugh even more about. I had oh the opportunity God. to meet President Clinton, <laughs> to photograph him. I was the only photographer allowing the room of thousands. At the very last minute before he left with Secret Service, I looked to the Secret Service guy and I said, can I please hand this camera over to my assistant? He says, yes. So I hand the camera to my assistant and all I want to do is go in and shake his hand for the picture. And my assistant was so nervous, shaking, his hands were shaking. As he clicked the camera, he only clicked one frame, by the way. Instead of like fast shutters, oh, I can get lots of pictures. He clicked one frame. As he clicked, he moved his camera down because he was so nervous. My hand goes in to grab President Clinton's hand and I miss this and then the picture, it looks like I'm groping him. So there you have it. <laughs> well, I'm glad I'm not the only one with an awkward story about trying to shake the hand of the president. <laughs> Chastens has continued to actively support the Biden and Harris campaign. And although we all need to get out and exercise our democratic right to vote, it is important to pitch in and find more ways that we can help. Now, yeah. we cannot let you go without talking about what's most important things happening on November 3rd. Yeah. As our community is a strong community and my community, Asian American community, is one of the largest, uh, growing fastest community, 11 million people. That, you know, as an educator, I know you're a champion for education, voting, and the importance of that. But outside of voting, what can we do? What can we continue doing to contribute to help the causes yeah. that, that we need to stand up for? Yeah, we have two weeks left. And I know people are getting tired. Um, a global pandemic doesn't help. I know people are exhausted, but now is the time to put the pedal to the middle. Please sign up for a shift to phone, make phone calls, text bank, write letters, write postcards, reach out to your local Democratic Party office and see what you can help with beyond voting, beyond texting or making those phone calls. This is the most personal election of our lifetimes. I feel like we usually say that, right? The most consequential election. This, this one's different. And all of the things that we care about are on the line. The choice could not be more different. And I know because I live in an area where people are still very much ready to vote for this president, how important it is to reach out to people in your own life and explain what you stand to lose, but what we all stand to gain. I recently reached out to uh, a family member and said, I know you like the guy. I really need you to vote for my rights this time because I am scared. And this family member said, okay, I will. Because they recognized that we as a community and we as a country stand to lose more than they might gain 
by using a tax benefit. A secretary of education who actually believes in public education. A president who actually affirms that black lives matter, that trans lives matter. A president who's interested, actually interested in protecting the LGBTQI community, enacting legislation to protect queer people in all 50 states and territories. There are so many things that are so personal for all of us. I know our country is grappling with a healthcare system that doesn't work for everyone. And we all want to see it progress. But we are choosing between someone who wants to strip it and someone who wants to improve it. My mother herself has been battling cancer for 13 years. And the ACA has made her healthcare much more affordable. Is it perfect? No. Is it keeping her alive? Yes. And that is why it is so important we elect someone who is interested in protecting her life and her health care. Please get comfortable being uncomfortable and reach out to one person, 10 people, your church group, your book group, whatever it is, whatever social group you are part of, and have the uncomfortable conversations. Because together we stand to lose a lot, but we also stand to gain so much more. So please, please vote and please have those conversations. I want to thank both Michelle and Chasten for their advocacy in the AAPI and the LGBTQI communities and their hard work getting people out to vote. If you haven't yet had a chance to read Chasten's book, I have something to tell you. Please pick up a copy and support your local bookstore. Thank you to all my listeners for your constant support. Please subscribe to this podcast for more open conversations. You can visit our website at letstalkwithusai.com and follow me on Instagram at usai88 for updates. Let's Talk is a production of 88 Faces. I'm your host, Yusai. Our director, Luis Jaime. And writer, editor, and producer, Trevor Swingen.